You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. William Evanina is the director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. He joined the Post to discuss the most pressing intelligence concerns today and on the horizon. Let's listen. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Ellen Nakashima, a national security reporter with The Post. And today I'm pleased to welcome the nation's top counterintelligence official, William Evanina. Bill is the director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. He served more than 30 years in the federal government in law enforcement and intelligence, including as the uh, counter espionage chief of the, uh, of the chief of the counter espionage group at the CIA, and as a special agent at the FBI. Welcome, Bill. Uh, hello, Ellen. I'm, I'm very humbled to be here. Bill, I wanted to start with the assault on the U.S. Capitol. It's been a, a dark week for American democracy, and. I wanted to ask you as a former law enforcement official and indeed as someone who investigated the 9-11 attacks and in particular flight, uh, United Flight 93, which was headed for the U.S. Capitol, had courageous passengers not downed it in a Pennsylvania field. What was your reaction when you learned that the U.S. Capitol had been breached? And what was your reaction upon learning that some Capitol police officers were suspended for inappropriate support to the demonstration? Well, Ellen, I think first and foremost, uh, I think horrified was my best word. Uh, I think um, last week I watched it with my family and, and my 16-year-old son. Uh, I had a, a potpourri of emotions, which I could not identify. I think uh, shock and awe and a little bit of embarrassment, but we, we had five Americans die in this event last week, which I think is just unjustifiable as Americans. When you look at uh, well, what I saw, it, I had visions of Belarus and visions of uh, Romania circa 1989, which is hard to believe. And I appreciate you circling back to 9-11, uh, 2001, because I think in my mind, this is as close as I got to that feeling of emptiness inside. And as Americans, I think we're just thirsty right now uh, for leadership. And I think the kind of leadership in Congress, uh, in society, where you could put your party affiliations aside, and speak for America. And I think right now our nation needs that. Well, we're having a crisis of confidence. And, and I will say that I heard last week on the Hill, which I think is apropos, that right now there's not one person or entity in America who could speak for America, which more than 50% of the American people will believe. And I think that's the real crisis of confidence we have in our democracy. So eloquently put. Bill, were you disheartened at all to, to hear that some law enforcement officers, your former colleagues in, in a way, are also under investigation for involved, possible involvement in or, or inappropriate support to the insurrectionists. Well, and as you know, I spent uh, 24 years in the, in the FBI and uh, I was on a SWAT team and I have a lot of empathy for the men and women who wear the uniform every day and protect the things they protect and put their lives at risk. And I'll let the investigations play themselves out, what they find and identify with potential uh, behavior on some that wear the uniform. But I can tell you if that's the case, it would be very disheartening. But I think the investigation will be long. It'll be thorough. People die. And I think a lot of folks are going to have to be held accountable, both in the law enforcement community and the security community. But for the perpetrators who stormed their capital, it is just about as un-American as we've seen in a long time. Now, much has been said about 
the domestic roots of the chaos. Let's turn a little to potential foreign involvement. We have a question from the audience, from Sarah Bolton of Massachusetts, who wonders, have you seen any indication of, of foreign actors fueling the attack or perhaps any presence in the crowd? Well, great question, Sarah. Uh, I guess as the investigation continues here in this aspect, even on the foreign uh, nexus, we have seen um, aggressive actions by our adversaries uh, stemming back to the George Floyd murder through COVID, election process continuing now. It's a continuum of action by our adversaries up till today. So we don't expect them to slow down or stop on their uh, disinformation or their amplification of bad uh, social media, bad ideas and bad thoughts here in America. Uh, I can tell you though, we are watching them watch us and I would very uh, cautiously uh, let them know that do not let our vulnerability domestic here, domestically here be a sign of weakness because our intelligence community and military apparatus is uh, currently on guard and watching closely. Have you seen any indication that any foreign actors are seeking to, to take advantage of that instability to perhaps mount an operation? I think for this call, Ellen, you could safely assure we're watching that very closely and we're taking the appropriate measures to mitigate that and, and, and message back to those perpetrators that that won't be uh, called for and won't be stood for in this particular situation. So as a former counterterrorism expert too, do you see any expert, uh, any parallels between the radicalization of a domestic, of what we are seeing here, the domestic extremists and say radicalization of uh, foreign terrorists? Do you, do you think that, that such parallels might be, you know, or what we're seeing here? Is that what, and then would you call what we are seeing domestic terrorism? Well, I think uh, domestic terrorism, as you know, is, is a vague term, right? We don't even have a law that allows the FBI to investigate that. Uh, but it's, you know, whether you want to call it insurrection or some other kind of uh, word of the day with the activities that happened last week. Yeah, I think you could draw logical parallels to that homegrown violent extremism. No one said the homegrown violent extremist has to be this color, that kind of person, white, black, green, a Democrat, Republican. But this is clearly homegrown and it's extremism. The, the mindset to be able to storm the U.S. Capitol because of a belief is something that I never thought I would see. So yes, I think we could draw those parallels. And I think the investigation and the assessment of what happened will take a while to, to uh, uh, ferret out as to what exactly happened in the mindset of these individuals. But it's something that we have to really look at a paradigm shift, how we're gonna look at this activity and not only today, but in the next couple of weeks as well. Can we turn to the uh, massive hacks of the United of the U.S. government agencies and private sector for a minute? Uh, Solar Winds hack. The intelligence community said last week that it was likely a Russian government operation. How likely, Bill? Well, I think uh, I don't. I don't know if there's a, a you know a, a continuum of likeliness. I think that's is. Uh, the best way the government can put it right now without full attribution. Attribution, as you know, Alan, is a, as a policy matter the executive branch would do. But in my belief here as head of counterintelligence, uh, I'm going to stick with uh, uh, Secretary Pompeo and Attorney General Barr. I believe it was the Russians, and I think that will vet itself out uh, in the future. But I think we have to really, in my space, Alan, pivot away from not only uh, that it was the Russians or who it was, but also what did they do? Why did they do it? What was the methodology? 
uh, as an espionage activity. And at the end of the day, we're going to eventually get past the cyber activity and how we're going to protect uh, businesses and, and organizations in, in the business community as well as governments. But actually, what were they seeking? You know, let's remember that the, the first rule of espionage is, is to identify the plans and intentions of foreign leaders and their governments. And I think that's what we see here. That's what you see here. No indication that it was going beyond that to perhaps disruption or even maybe some sort of predicate for a uh, disinformation or interference operation. Yeah, I won't get in front of the government's uh, assessment of this right now, but from my perspective uh, in counterintelligence space, I see this as an intelligence gathering operation. The intelligence community said last week that uh, as of that point, fewer than 10 federal agencies were breached. Do you expect that number to grow? Uh, and, and how many victims overall, private sector, public sector, have been compromised? Yeah, Ellen, I think that investigation obviously is, is aggressive and continues to go with multiple agencies involved in investigating. I think you're going to see probably a growth there, but I don't know the numbers that we'll see. I think you will also see some more private sector companies that have been affected. Again, with a software company and the supply chain apparatus that which we live in now in our, in our global environment, I think this will expand accordingly as we identify. I think the hard part for the investigators is we don't know what we don't know, but I think this will continue to grow. You mentioned the supply chain uh, vulnerabilities here. Clearly, this was a wake-up call for the government and the private sector. What steps must they take, the private sector and the government, to prevent something like this from happening again, from to, to protect the security of the software supply chain? First, I'll say I'm not sure we're ever going to get to be in a place where we can protect this from happening again. It's just the nature of the beast in the cyber world. I mean, we had FireEye, one of the best companies in the world, penetrated by this activity. Um, we've had government agencies penetrated. And as we move um, into the modern world and as we move towards 5G, this software of vulnerability will only continue to expand. But I will say your point of a wake-up call, uh, we've had too many wake-up calls. And I think right now, as, as we put in the counterintelligence strategy for America, Supply chain protection is the second pillar. And I think we really have to find the right mechanism, the right modality, Ellen, where we could have real life public-private partnership that's beyond what we see now. We have to have in the government the ability to utilize private sector talent, capability, and know-how to protect our nation and our entire society. Well, what, what do we do to get that? I mean, and are you talking about uh, greater visibility by the government agencies, perhaps to you know, be DHS or if not the NSA, into private sector networks? Well, I don't know about that, but I do think you know, uh, there's been a lot of talk about what zero trust is. And I think we have to be able to be in a position and be willing uh, to have a supply chain risk mitigation program that really is around zero trust. And the, and the understanding of who, you, who provides your services, where they get them from, and actually how they get them and how does that fit in the uh, ecosystem of the food chain for IT services. I will also say, Ellen, I think it also goes back to supply chain mitigation also deals with uh, self-governance, our ability to not be fall victim to spear phishing, our ability to understand credentialing and close credentials when they expire, and our ability and our must have to patch where vulnerabilities are exposed and patches get issued. We have to make sure that we can control the controllables and do the blocking and tackling that will make it harder for adversaries to get into our supply chain.
and some experts like Alex Stamos have called for an, an NTSB, like a National Transportation Safety Board-like commission inquiry into uh, breaches of this sort in order to do deep investigations that then become public so that we understand what went wrong here and what steps perhaps can be taken to prevent them. Do you, do you think that might be a good idea? I do. Depending on how that's scoped and how we uh, put guardrails on that, I think that has some merit to it. But I also think, Ellen, I, we're going to have to, and this will be a challenge for the new administration, we're going to have to expand the paradigm for how we do business as a country. I think the government is going to have to expand authorities and laws to allow the private sector to partner more effectively. There's a lot of talent and know-how in the private sector, and the government needs to be willing to take that on. And for instance, you know, the NSA, DHS, FBI trilogy, you know, one's, you know, uh, domestic in terms of hardware and government systems, one's OCONUS, one's investigative. I think we have to get to a, a sound solution, how we make that all one in the future. Okay. Uh, real quickly, on the um, coronavirus response, do you have any concerns about supply chain threats to vaccine development and delivery? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think... Uh, NCSC, we work very closely with the Army and HHS right now in Operation Warp Speed. We're part of that process, helping to facilitate safe uh, transportation and protection from the manufacturing site to the end user to inoculation. It's a very complex problem, and I would definitely uh, commend uh, the women and men of the Army and the entire government who's part of Operation Warp Speed to ensure that we are able to facilitate that transportation of the vaccine safely, full well knowing our adversaries are trying to disrupt that supply chain. Which adversaries in particular right now are you most concerned about? China, Russia? Uh, I, would, I would say China and Russia right now, yep. So moving to China, you've been advising the Biden transition team. Tell us, what are the big counterintelligence threats that they'll be facing when they take office? Well, first I'll say, you know, I personally have been doing that, but they are getting the presidential David brief every day. And I'm confident that uh, the administration that's oncoming, uh, President Biden and Vice uh, President-elect uh, Harris, are getting the exact same intelligence I'm getting, uh, President Trump's getting, and the intelligence community is getting, so they could have a jump start uh, to see the threats that we face every day. In my space, Ellen, I think there's a couple things in, in counterintelligence. Number one is the geopolitical aspects of why China, Russia, and Iran do what they do. Uh, what is what is the CI nexus to big data theft? What is the CI nexus to supply chain? And how are we going to effectively protect our critical infrastructure moving forward from the Russians and the Chinese and from hacktivists? And I would also say ransomware that's state-sponsored, specifically in the telecommunications, the energy, and I would say the financial services sector are my biggest three concerns we see where we've seen nation state threat actors and our adversaries pivot towards in the last few years. Last summer, the U.S. government closed uh, the Chinese consulate in Houston on the grounds that it was active in directing Chinese espionage in the United States and more than a thousand PLA-linked researchers fled the country. Are you seeing any more activity by the Chinese in the United States like this and what does it look like? Sure, great question. I think that uh, I think that effort last year, Ellen, was a great um, manifestation of a whole of government response to a threat that we saw. Not only with the the FBI, local law enforcement, the State Department, the intelligence community, commerce, uh, sanctions. It was really, really a really well put together effort by the government. What we see now on the basis of the Chinese 
is their effort to not only obfuscate that, but change their tactics and techniques moving forward so they can continue to do that effort, but in a different uh, modality. I don't think the Chinese are going to slow down with how they collect illegally and legally our, our technology and our wherewithal. And I think we have to keep ahead of that and find out what's the next best method they do to take away our knowledge and expertise. Let's move to the 2020 election for a minute here. Uh, the current director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, said last week he disagrees with his own intelligence community's assessment of foreign interference and that analysts failed to fully capture the scope of Chinese efforts to influence the election. You tracked the issue. Did the intelligence community underplay the Chinese threat to the election? I don't know, Ellen. I think I think there's an aspect of this where I saw the intelligence every day uh, from both sides in Russia, China, Iran, and others, and I saw the threat. And I, I believe all three countries, for the most part, were really, really nefarious in trying to influence our, our elections. I think both had a play. Obviously, we looked at Russia as being the number one player in election threat interference, but China played its hand as well. But I can tell you from my perspective as being the lead briefer from the intelligence community, um, I made a commitment that at any time during the course of the year, if anyone had asked me to do something, write something, say something that was not true and that was not towards the integrity that I possess, I would resign immediately. And I can tell you that I had not seen that and I was not a victim of that and nor did I partake in any of that activity. And I think what you have right now is a bipolarized country which manifests itself all punch of society to include the intelligence community. Were you surprised to see Iran step into the election interference arena? And what was their strategic objective here? And what and yeah, do you expect them to continue? Yeah, yeah I was surprised. Well, that's a great question. And uh, I, I think you know we saw at the end of the uh, the end of the cycle there where they were the really the main catalyst for actually taking action and they continue to take action. I look at uh, Iran as not having many options left, right? So from a geopolitical perspective, with the maximum pressure campaign, uh, the assassination of Soleimani, the sanctions, you really have to look at Iran and where they are in the global economy, which is nowhere. Uh, they are a caged animal, and I think they're very dangerous right now. And I think the new administration is going to have to really uh, thread the needle onto how do we keep the pressure on them at the same time, probably provide them with some uh, avenue to acquiesce a little bit from the threat, because I think they're on the, uh, the precipice here of probably harming their nation. Okay. Yeah, as, as the events of 2016, 2020, and, and last week have indicated, and as you mentioned, the American people are, are hyper-polarized, and many are incredibly distrustful of, of U.S. institutions and officials. As a policy matter, Bill, do you believe that taking that social media companies deplatforming public figures whose statements incite violence and insurrection is is appropriate is effective well this is a really tough question Ellen and I, and we, I find myself having this conversation not only at work with uh, my, with my peers but at home and I think a society needs to now come to grips with where we are with that uh, safe space between first amendment rights and the ability and willingness of private companies to do what they want on their own platforms. Uh, I personally think that a private business has the right to do what they want to do, but my concern is who is that behind the keyboard making the determination that what Bill says uh, should be uh, restricted, but what Ellen says is not restricted. I think this situation we're in right now in this past year really calls for a whole of American society, uh, maybe a, a blue ribbon panel to really look at where we're gonna go in the future with social media and free speech.
And, and just to follow up on that, what, was Twitter right to to ban Trump from its platform? I don't know if whether they're right or wrong, but, but they clearly have the right to do what they want to do. And they made a business decision that what they did was right. And I, I can't really opine on that business decision from my perspective, but I, I do uh, caution uh, social media companies in the future that hopefully they have a policy and a rationale for what they do. But I do think, again, like the government, private sector organizations and software companies, big tech, have an obligation to protect America. And if they feel it was right and that's their decision to make, they are a private company. Okay, and did you feel? Do you feel that they have played a role in the polarization of American society? I don't know if Twitter has, or I think big tech, media, news organizations. And I'll go back to uh, my point earlier, Ellen. I just think for the American populace right now, and I would say even globally, it's really hard if you want to find objective news to go get it. I think the polarization of our country right now is at a point where we have to stop, assess and try to go backwards. Because I think right now you have social media companies, you have media um, organizations, newspapers who are being labeled, rightly or wrongly, some part of this political spectrum. And I think that's probably not where we want to continue to go uh, as, as, a nature, as a nation. But I will say, Ellen, that I think the key indication for me is how are foreign adversaries look at this problem set? Are they taking advantage of the conversation you and I are having right now with big tech and social media companies? And what will the Russians and Chinese and Iranians do to not only um, amplify it, but create divisiveness beyond what we are doing ourselves? Exactly. In the few minutes we have left, Bill, uh, I want to go to an issue raised by Steve Visco from Pennsylvania, the issue of politicization of the intelligence community. And I'm going to sort of riff on the question he sent in, which is last week, uh, as you know, the intelligence community ombudsman sent an unclassified letter to the Hill saying that in intelligence community officials, though not you in particular, attempted to exercise undue influence on, on the analysis and dissemination of intelligence on foreign threats to the election, and that there also have been cases of analysts injecting bias into their reports. So he said there was politicization from above and from below. Is this systemic politicization in your view, Bill? And is this an issue that Biden's incoming intelligence team needs to address? So I'll go last, uh, my first answer, Ellen. I definitely think the administration and Avril Haines, who's coming in to be the DNI and the new CI director, will have to take a look at this with NSA to say, what are the core causes and the core issues with the analytic community to be able to not have drive a consensus? I think that's number one. Secondarily, for individuals like me and for principals that are going to be coming in the government, must have confidence that what we're provided to brief policymakers, members of Congress, is true and accurate as being written, collected, and analyzed by analysts. We cannot be in a situation where we are questioning the analysis moving forward. So I think it's doable, but I think our new, new administration is going to have to have a pause, a timeout, and look at what are the core root causes of this and find some mitigations immediately. Uh, we have only a minute left, and I I'm seeing that there's going to be a three o'clock press conference by uh, the FBI about the events at the Capitol. Do you have any, um, you know, any thoughts on what they're going to re to reveal or say? Can you give us a little preview? <laughs> Sorry, I can't give you a preview, but I like what I can tell you, Ellen, and your listeners, the American people, is now is the time when we as Americans have to have confidence in the institutions that have protected us thus far. I have the utmost confidence in the FBI, DHS. 
the police departments, the U.S. military, we're going to protect us between now and the inauguration and, and further on. We have to believe in the institutions that got us here the last couple hundred years. And so moving forward, have faith, have trust, and I think we will get to where we need to be early on in this next administration as Americans and start the healing and building process to where we need to be. With that, thank you very, very much, Bill. Um, you, you know, you're probably um, going to be leaving government, I guess, after more than 30 years of service. Thank you for, for those years of service. Uh, you've given us quite a bit of, uh, of, of thoughtful analysis and intelligence over the years. And I guess I just want to thank you uh, for being with us. Thank you to the audience for tuning in. And Washington Post Live will be back tomorrow morning with continued coverage of the transition with Jack Goldsmith, a veteran of the George W. Bush Justice Department and co-author of After Trump Reconstructing the Presidency. So join us at 11 a.m. Eastern. And once again, I'm Ellen Nakashima with Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.